turn to Romans chapter 7. As was said, we've been working through Romans verse by verse, so here we are this morning um, in Romans 7. In just a second, we're going to read verse, beginning in verse 7, all the way to the end of the chapter and one part of chapter 8. Okay, let's hear God's word. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual and sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that, that's a lot. And just to let you know, we're going to kind of take a helicopter ride over this, this chapter today and then I'll be gone a couple of weeks, and Lord willing, we're going to take a dive back in, and we'll go through it section by section, more, more verse by verse. But this is a difficult chapter. The realities of it uh, need to be dealt with, and um, let's pray and ask God for that kind of help. Now, God, we always look to you, and now we look to you to help us with your word. We want to hear your voice 
because that's what we need and that is what we seek. So again, I need your help. We need your help. And so God, right now we make known our weakness in order that Christ's power may rest on us. And therefore, Father, to the praise of your glory and the good of everyone who listens, may your grace abound. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, we've said this before, a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is to be expected. That's actually John Owen on The Christian Life. We are involved in a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That is a Christian confession from the 17th century. And it was in the 18th century, the year 1776, when the battle for New York The second major battle of the Revolutionary War was ending. The British had a plan, and they executed that plan flawlessly. And on the other end of that was an American general who misunderstood everything which took place that day. He was outsmarted in every way, and as a result, he became very, very angry. So angry, and I'm quoting now, he cursed violently at his troops, plunged his horse into his troops, And losing complete control of himself, drew his sword on his own men and threatened to run that sword through them. His own men. Even flogging some of his own officers with his riding crop and losing his mind, telling them how cowardly they were during the middle of the retreat, which he himself called for. Now that was that man. Now I want you to listen to this man who prayed this prayer not too long after the Battle of New York. O eternal and everlasting God, I present myself this morning before thy divine majesty. I humble thee to accept of my humble and hearty thanks that it hath pleased thy great goodness to keep and preserve me the night past from all the dangers poor mortals are subject to, and you have given me sweet sleep. He goes on, increase my faith and the sweet promises of the gospel. Give me repentance from dead works. Pardon my wanderings and direct my thoughts unto thyself, the God of my salvation. Teach me how to live in thy fear, labor in thy service, and ever to run in the ways of thy commandments. Make me always watchful over my heart that neither terrors of conscience, a loathing of holy duties, the love of sin, nor an unwillingness to part this life may cast me into a spiritual slumber. But daily, God, frame me more and more into the likeness of thy son, Jesus Christ, that living in thy fear and dying in thy favor, I may in thy appointed time attain the resurrection of the just unto eternal life. And then he ends his prayer, bless my family, bless my friends, bless my kindred. Now here's the thing. The man who cursed wildly at his troops, threatened to kill him, struck his own officers with a whip, the man, that man is the same man who prayed this humble prayer And that man is our nation's first president, General George Washington. If you were listening, it was like he was two different people. The man who was often deified was the man, at least for that moment, who seemed like a devil. And many of us would admit, I would, that I could be the same way. I recently began reading a small little book. I know you know the title, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Robert Louis Stevenson. The book, you have to read. It's more telling than the movie. It's a frightening book, but it tells of the Dr. Jekyll, the good Dr. Jekyll, who at 
time went on, he began to be dissatisfied, very dissatisfied with his life. And the reason why he was dissatisfied and unhappy with his life was, and I'm just quoting now, every day I drew steadily near the truth that man is not truly one, but truly two. I saw the primitive duality of man. I saw two natures contending in the field of my consciousness. If I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. So he's talking of the inconsistent nature of human nature. Now, as time went on, he began to realize this, that human beings are not really one but two. That there's this, if you would, kind of radical duality in every human being. That we are not one but two. He then, in the book, became very hopeless with his life because he felt like, you know, this was a dead end for him. He was just so tired and was being drained of being a battlefield for those two selves. He, he called himself in the book an incongruous compound. In other words, an inconsistent mixture. And he said, Not, no one then can be happy because of this war which takes place. So he said, I have a virtuous self. Who, who wants to deny selfishness and really do the right thing, but also have a kind of grasping, selfish self who does not, who just wants to please himself, and both of them keep the other from being totally happy and enjoying life. And so he says, if each, I was thinking, could but be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. In other words, he thought, okay, if I can... Admit this radical duality that these two separate parts of me was the reason why everything was wrong in the life or the world for that matter. If I could just somehow separate them, then the evil self might just go its own way, no longer bound up by the guilt of his upright twin. And the good self could walk his good path doing good and no longer be exposed and hounded by the actions of his evil self. Now, you understand, he thought, okay, if I could just separate the two in me and let each be one, then I would be better, and this indwelling war would finally be at an end. So, as you probably know, he, he goes back to the lab again. He comes up with a potion, and the potion makes it so he can finally separate the two out. And when Dr. Jekyll becomes Edward Hyde, Mr. Hyde, he becomes this completely selfish person. This is what he says. This being Edward Hyde was inherently maligned. His every act and every thought centered completely on himself. So Stevenson wrote that Hyde was the only unmixed human being on the earth. So that when you came up to him, you found nothing good at all. He had no endearing qualities at all. Nothing but a selfish person who... who was, if you would, quintessentially stuck on himself. Every act he had, every thought centered completely on him. And when a person would meet Edward Hyde, their flesh would just crawl because here was complete selfishness unmixed, just ready to suck the life out of you, him, Hyde, because he was always deciding, if you would, for himself. And so the book ends saying the thing that Dr. Jekyll did not realize was, although he knew he was two, he had no idea how evil his evil self was. It was far greater than he can ever imagine. And what he says, the moment that he took the potion is, I knew myself the first breath of this new life to be much more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave. That's verse 14 of chapter 7. 
sold as a slave to original sin, and the thought braced and delighted me like wine. And of course, if you know the story, he cannot control Hyde, and eventually Edward Hyde wins out. Now, I suspect you could not help but notice how much of Romans 7 was in Stevenson's book. Sold as a slave to sin. I mean, that's again, that's right out of the Bible and duality going on in chapter 7 and the duality going on in the story and how he was much more wicked than you can ever imagine. So I made me think and I wanted to know a little bit more about Robert Louis Stevenson. And sure enough, he was raised in a solid, actually kind of a staunch Christian home. And yes, this chapter 7 of Romans did help inspire the story. Stevenson would say that his home had more rules than more gospel. That's him. And you see, what makes the story that he told so telling and useful is Dr. Jekyll understood he had a moral and an evil self. But what he finds out is he had no idea how evil his evil self really was. And there was absolutely no possible human way for for this battle, which was raging inside of him, to be won by him. Now, here's the question we have to try to answer today. Is this a picture of Christianity? Is this in some way uh, much of the teaching of Romans 7? Is this the Christian life? Because it can be a frightening thing to actually know your true self. So is this us? Are we Jekyll and Hyde? Is this the Christian story? Well, here's my answer. Yes and no. You see, the way to understand this is as you go back to Romans 7, you read it though, you read it through, excuse me, there is a battle going on. It's an irresistible battle. Sin is a monster. The Christian battle against sin is staggering. I mean, you can't help but to sense that when, you, when you're listening to Paul's words, anyone who's ever fought a real battle with indwelling sin knows what Paul is talking about. D.A. Carson wrote, happy is the Christian who sees in every sin a monster that could easily snare him eternally were it not for the grace of God. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of shocking. I mean, this is an apostle who's saying this stuff. This is a saint. He's this amazing Christian leader. Surely he must have sin at bay at some level in his life. I mean, he laid his his life on the line, body, soul, wallet for Jesus Christ, for the churches, for the gospel. How can he, this amazing Christian leader, talk this way and let that kind of thing happen to himself? He's in union with Christ, Romans 6. He's died to sin, Romans 6. Is he just like a poser? Or is he really, really weak? How can he say, if your Bible's open, chapter 7, verse 14, how can he say, I am unspiritual, Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You don't say that kind of stuff publicly. (laughs) Is he Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Well, again, yes and no. You see, because what we dare not miss is when you get to verse 14, there's a change in tense. So in verses 7 to 13, there's this incredible amount of struggle. However, it is all past tense. I mean, you see it there. For example, I was, verse 9. 
I found, verse 10. I wouldn't have known, verse 8. All of it is pre-conversion. And then in verse 14, you have a present struggle. It's all written in the present tense. I am, verse 14. I do or I don't do, verses 15 and 16. I have, verse 17. I find this law at work in me, verse 21. Post-conversion. Pre-conversion life, verses 7 to 13, a certain kind of struggle. Post-conversion life, verses 14 to 25, a different kind of struggle, but a struggle nonetheless. So what Paul is trying to teach us is that all of life, in all of life, there is a battle between two. Now please listen carefully. But there is a different war than before a person becomes a Christian, than the war which takes place after a person becomes a Christian. What Paul is trying to show us here is that there is a war between the self which happens before you meet Christ and there is a war which takes place after you meet Christ. The war between the cells before you meet Christ is a war without hope. It is a war that you cannot win. And Robert Louis Stevenson did a terrific job showing the futility of trying to win that war. Hyde defeats Jekyll soundly. But the war after you meet Christ, this is the good news, is the war you cannot lose. Now, what does that mean? Because that is good news, as in the gospel. Okay, but what does it mean? Well, it means a lot. And again, we're going to take a helicopter ride over this chapter today. But Lord willing, when we come back, we'll go through it section by section, verse by verse, and get to the details of it. Nevertheless, what, is, what this tells us is that when we become a Christian... You do not move from warfare to peace. You move from a war that you could not win to a new war, a war you cannot lose. And the difference is monumentally important, the source of strength monumentally, monumentally massive. So if you have a look down in your Bibles, in verses 7 to 13 is the big picture of the war that we cannot win. And that war goes on, on in every human being. It's out there. It is universal. There is not a person on this planet who does not know this war. And here Paul speaks of this war before he was a Christian, but then verses 14 to 25 is the new war as a Christian. And that is the war you cannot lose. And every human being on this planet is in one of these two wars. It's just a question of which one. So just to our first point, verses 7 to 13 is a description of the battle we cannot win. Now, again, this is in the past tense, but it's also in the first person singular, meaning Paul is talking about himself before Jesus Christ. And in many ways, Paul, I mean, if you know Paul, he was a Dr. Jekyll. I mean, think about him. He was a very upright Pharisee. In legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. I mean, he had his list and he kept his list. He was moral, he was religious, and all his boxes were checked. So when a person would want to go toe-to-toe with Paul and his list, Paul would always win. So on the basis of like external morality, Paul wins every time. Now, he had some awareness of sin in his life, but that was part of his show. So, so he could beat down his sins, kind of, sort of, by his good deeds. He could dazzle the crowds, and he did, by his good deeds. And in Jekyll and Hyde, there is this potion which makes Jekyll realize his hideous and selfish self. And Paul, it wasn't the potion, but it was the moral law of God. It was the Ten Commandments. 
So the day came for the pre-converted Paul, again, past tense, the day came in which Paul finally understood that which had been going on in him and the battle just broke out. Your Bibles, please, verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. So he kind of personifies sin. Sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought me death. Now, what does that mean? Well, before, Paul could take the law, not totally understand it, and then it's like, this is life. This is living. Look at Paul go. Look at Paul go. Moral Paul. Look at him go. Now, it sounds like he's saying that everything was going swell in my life, and then the the law was dropped in my lap, and everything went south. But that could not be right, because Paul was raised in a devout Jewish home. And it would not have been possible for Paul to not know and hear and be taught the law of God. He would have been taught all the commandments. And so this 10th commandment that we should not covet, that would have been part of his learning. So this is what he's saying. I was alive until I understood the commandment. So I was taught it, but when I finally understood it, that is when I went way past the letter of the law. It was at that point the commandment hit home. And look at verse 10. In verse 11, and at that point, it killed me. It killed the old me. That's what he's saying. Think of it this way. A person says, those rioters are breaking the law. But the same person cheats on their taxes and cheats on their spouse. And the fact suddenly dawns on them, they are crushed. Or Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Everyone has a stone. One simple question. Okay, anyone without sin, by all means, throw the stone. The truth dawns on them, they are crushed, they drop the stone. Paul says, once I fully understood the commandment, once that commandment finally hit home, verse 10, verse 11, it killed me, it killed the old me. Okay, how so? Well, as we said, through the commandment understood, he came to understand that coveting was in his heart, that he wanted more, And something different than God was pleased to give. And so verse 13b, through the commandment, understood, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, this is a recognized cognitive change. This is in the mind. This is in the heart. He begins to see finally how utterly sinful he was in his coveting. And the commandment showed Paul, if you would, his Mr. Hyde self. That's the first how. The second thing we're told that the commandment, and this is just startling, the commandment just didn't reveal his Mr. Hyde self, but in some ways it empowered and it aggravated his Mr. Hyde. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced, produced, the word there is where we get our word ergonomics, worked in me every kind of covenant. So there was a moment when Paul didn't have any real idea what he was capable of. He would say, well, yes, yes, I'm a sinner. But I am not a sinner. Those folks over there, yeah, but me? Have you seen me? But he had no idea how wicked he was. He had no idea how how deep sin ran. He had no idea how deviant he was, how evil he was. He had no idea what he was really capable of, but something revealed it to him, a potion, 
revealed that he was more wicked than he ever imagined. And of course, it wasn't a potion. It was the commandments. But it wasn't just any commandment. It was the 10th commandment. Okay, why the 10th? Is that just some random? You know, could he pick like thieving or adultery? Those are, you know, those are the good ones. I don't think so. You see, the way almost all of us buffer ourselves from the awareness of the real depth of our sin is that we take a moral mandate, the commandments, and think, okay, look, I'm not nailing them all down, but I'm nailing most of them down most of the time. I don't always lie, steal, lust, and obey my parents, but I do most of the time. However, in this 10th commandment, and listen carefully, you get a definition of sin which shows what all the other commandments are getting at. You see, coveting is the illegitimate desire of wanting anything more than God. That's coveting at its core. An illegitimate desire of wanting anything more than God. That is coveting. That is the essence of sin. Wanting something most other than God. You know, the song that we sung here, Thou our best thought by day or by night. Coveting says that's not true. Coveting is saying there is something besides God and his love and his salvation that I must have if I'm going to be at peace, if I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be satisfied, if I'm going to feel complete. That is coveting. That is the essence of sin. Not being content with just God. God isn't enough. Wanting then for something God has not given and so a constant displeasure with God has, with what God has or has not given, with the added, if I can't have it, I don't want anyone else to have it either. And that was the beast in Paul, finally uncovered and exposed, laid bare, and of course it killed him. In other words, it stunned him, it killed him. So if we cannot love God enough to be content with what you are and what you have, that is coveting. That is the essence of sin. So, so, loved ones, can't you see that all the problems that we have are so much rooted in coveting? The coveting is like that black hole, that bottomless pit in the heart of every person by nature which says, God, no, 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 I need money, I need power, I need beauty, I need comfort, I need, I need success, I need to have the room, I need everything to just be like this and like this and like this. However, no matter how much we send it into that black hole, it cannot be filled. All of that is at the heart of what is wrong with the world. That is at the heart of what's wrong with me. What's wrong with you? It's sin. It's coveting. I mean, why do, you, do we get so angry? Why do we get so mad? Because sometimes someone has gotten in the middle of something that we have to have. Coveting. Why do we get so worried? Why do we get so afraid? It's not because we want something. Wanting things are fine. God gave us wants. Coveting is I have to have it. I have to have it. I have to have the thing which will finally make me feel safe and at peace and satisfied. And that thing, if you would, is not God. Now, please think with me and bear with me. The commercialization of Christianity always leads with what? Does it lead with Christ? No, it always leads as this is what you don't have. You don't have a great family. You don't have a lot of money. You don't have a great marriage. You don't have a quality of life. It's rare that they begin with God. And Paul began to understand that all his morality was nothing more than covetedness. It was the tool to get things that he wanted to have. He used his good works. He used his morality 
He would even use his God, little g, to get what he wanted. He didn't want to have to rely on God's mercy like the rest of humanity or like failures like me. Not him. And that is the reason why he had all those problems. The reason why he had that moral superiority complex. The reason why he was so cruel to people, unforgiving, destructive towards people he didn't like. The reason why there was such a hardness of heart and the reason why he was fighting God himself is because he coveted and he finally understood this. And not only did the commandment show him intellectually how deeply flawed he was, it showed him, look at verse 8, it showed him the reality that moral education made him more covetous and not less. Again, verse 8, the reality that moral education made him more covetous and not less. Now, if you don't know this, then, then please think with me. Every other religion is, is at its root moral instruction. You don't need a savior. You need a list. And then they give you their list. So it was Augustine who, who gave that classic illustration in his book, Confessions. That when he was a little boy, he busted into a fruit orchard. He stole some fruit from a tree. Not because he was hungry. I mean, he threw the fruit that he stole to the pigs. No, he did it because he, he was told, don't do it. And as soon as he was told, don't do it, guess what he did? He did it. I told you that during the summer, my wife and I take walks. She's always telling me, rightly so, don't point, don't point. I'm always pointing. It's the Disney rule. At Disney World and Disneyland, they never point. They just do things like this. And I'm like pointing. She says, don't point. Well... I keep pointing. <laughs> no offense. Verse 8. The law aroused in him this fundamental sinfulness of heart. I make my own rules. I want to be God instead of being under God. The law then shows that. To be your own savior rather than to depend on a savior. So when Augustine wanted the fruit was when he was told you cannot have the fruit. And as soon as he was told you, can have, you cannot have the fruit and it was on. Loved ones, if you don't know this, then you do not know your own heart. But if you do know this, then you know, looking into that black hole, that infinite black hole, there is only one person. There's not one act, not many moral acts, but there's only one person who can fill it. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, do you see this? Have you dealt with this honestly on any level at all? This is a war we cannot win, and you cannot become a Christian until you realize this. So, so you there at home and here, do, do you know this war? Do you feel it? The war between good and evil. Paul said when he finally saw it, he said, verse 9, it killed me. Which is probably why, if you think about it, Jesus said that we need to be born again. Because he realized he was dead in the war dead in the water with God, underneath all his morality was this enormous self-righteousness. His morality was a way of getting out from under depending on Christ as Savior. And Jesus says that to every moral, religious human being. Because he is saying that it's not, that's not how you get to me. Morality gets you further away from me. Romans 10.3 
trying to establish their own righteousness, speaking to the Jews, they would not submit to God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a war you cannot win, first point. But second point, and finally, there's a war you cannot lose. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time. We'll spend more time next time. But nevertheless, this war is described in verses 14 to 25. And it's different. It's completely different. And at the heart of this, verses 14 to 25 is summed up in one verse in the book of Galatians. This is it, Galatians 5, 17. And this is for Christians. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And loved ones, please listen. This is massively important. This is a very different war than a war you cannot win for two reasons. One, in, in the war you cannot win, the difference, they are both equally us. The coveting us and the conscious us is us. I mean, sometimes modern psychology has trouble really dealing with this. We are both Jekyll and Hyde. To know we should be good and to know we should be upright, that is written into our hearts by God. That's Romans 2. There is this moral truth in us. But Romans 1 says we try to suppress that truth by our disobedience, by our wickedness. And therein, we will not have anyone to tell us what to do. And the fact that we struggle in evil... And in good, that battle is plain as rain. It's, it's what it means to be human. In fact, you're not human if, if you don't know what that's like. That's the first reason. The second reason, Paul says, as a Christian, there's still a battle going on between good and evil. But, but one of them now is the real me. The real me. The new you in Christ. That's the real you now. Again, the real you in Christ. That's the real you now. Before there was like two yous. Now there's one you. So listen to Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 again. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So it's not, as a Christian, it's not there's two yous here. It's one you. And Paul says, verse 22 of Romans 7 in my inmost being, listen carefully, in my inmost being, my innermost being, the real me, right? The real me, the new me, delights in God's law. But there's another power in me. Not another person, but another power. And that power would pull me away from this. But it's not me. It's not me. Okay, what is happening here? Well, this is a different war because you're not divided in this war anymore. There is this sense where it's not two yous as it was before. There is still flesh and spirit, but flesh is mortally wounded and inevitably dying. So that when you become a Christian, God's spirit comes to you. And God takes his law and, if you would, writes it or weaves it into your heart. And now the law is just coursing through your bloodstream. Now, in the unreborn person, the law does nothing but aggravate the problem, right? The unconverted pro person, the law aggravates the problem. The more moral education you put to them, it just aggravates and produces no good and, and makes you aware of this. I mean, honestly, Robert Louis Stevenson, the, the writer of Jekyll and Hyde, 
he was tortured by moral education. His home was mostly rules and not a lot of gospel. Moral education, void of the cross, void of the preaching of Jesus, is torturous. Okay, why? Because the conscious self submits to the law. The coveting self, the Mr. Hyde, hates the law. But neither of them love the law, delight in the law. Because one is trying to save itself through the law, impossible. The other is trying to save itself by rejecting the law. You know, just, just let me be me person. However, when you become a Christian, the gospel comes to you and it changes your attitude towards the law. And the first thing the gospel says to you is, okay, you're dead. You can never satisfy God. And your religious moral self and your rebel evil self are both ways. They're both coveting. And none of them will get you right and keep you right with me. But the gospel says, this is 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in the book, whenever Mr. Hyde would just expose himself to people, people would just, just freak out. I mean, they have never seen the face of pure evil. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 means a lot more to me because Jesus on the cross, he just didn't become a sinner. He became sin. In other words, God poured out his wrath on Jesus just like you and I would when we see sin. It must be destroyed. Jesus becomes sin and God punishes sin on the cross for all the wrongs that we have done and that we still do. Now, you have to ask yourself, do you really believe that? Do you, do you understand that? And here's the bigger question. Does that still melt your heart? Does that still mean the world to you? Because the minute you trust in Jesus, what comes into you is the Spirit of God, and He writes His law on the flesh of your heart. And now, now, before you became a Christian, the law was kind of like a necessary evil. But now our obedience is an expression of love for the one who lived and bled and died for you. If it is not, it is not acceptable. Now the law is a delight. That's dying to the law. Before, now listen carefully, before obedience was, and maybe even now sometimes, our obedience was to keep God back or keep God at bay or to keep God on our side. That's not love. Now, it's because it's God. That's why we obey. And you see, as long as you try to rely on your obedience to please God, haven't you noticed this? You're always going to be kind of mad at God at times. You're going to be mad at God. You're going to be afraid of God. You're going to be ticked off a lot. And so God's like your boss. And you can only get so close to your boss. And your boss could fire you. And so you do good just to settle your boss down. You know, quiet down, I'm going to do good. But as a Christian, you should be through with that. Because now it's about love. Loving God's law and loving to please the Father. Let's close like this. So, so suppose, Christian, you, you had some bad habits in your old life. Drugs, sex, gossip, lying, something. In the old war, you would do it, and then you would stop doing it, and you get mad at yourself, and you make promises, and you do good for a bit, and then you collapse, and then go into these long 
things. But now you're a Christian and you fall back into that stuff because it happens. What's the difference? Here's the difference. And nobody deserves this. Now you're in a battle that you cannot lose. Because now that sin is no longer expressive of your true self, of the new you. Verse 22, in my innermost being, I delight in the law of God. That's Christian. That's Christian. I delight in my inner being, my new me. I delight in the law of God. We are now then in a war which we cannot lose. We were in a war which we could not win. The way we make the transition from the, the war we cannot win to the war we cannot to lose is, is what? What is it? So simple, isn't it? Faith in Jesus Christ. When you see that Jesus became sin itself for you, and you begin to understand how sinful sin is, then you only have one hope in life and death, and it is not you. And it is not some moral act. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you see this? Do you see this? There is no way to become a Christian without a death. The death of the old you and the birth of a new you. Verse 24, what a, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that, that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe this? We serve a good and gracious and patient God. We serve a good and gracious and patient God. Let's pray. Father, our hope does not live because we are not sinners, but our hope is because we are sinners for whom Christ died. My trust is not in that I am holy, but that Jesus Christ is my righteousness and he has made and he will make me holy. So we proclaim, God, the excellence of your ways. You are holy and perfect in everything and yet you stoop to love us, fallen and sinful rebels like we are. We do not deserve your kindness. We do not deserve your care, yet you've set your love upon us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You pursue us with an everlasting promise. And that should melt our hearts. Forgive us when morality means more to us than your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to walk in his ways, to love the law, 
and to live in love with Jesus. To love everything that he loves as he would himself. This we pray, Father, in his name, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.